The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning, Shades. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Revelation chapter 11. Our scripture reading for today is Revelation 11:15 through 12:17. It's chapter 11, verse 15 is where we'll be starting. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. 
And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given to given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. And if you were with us last week, you might find yourself wondering why there is a Revelation chapter 12. Last week concluded with the blowing of the seventh and final trumpet. And when that trumpet was blown in chapter 11 and verse 15, we saw a vision of God's kingdom come, a vision of the second coming of Christ. Heaven's rejoicing in 11 and verse 17 bears witness to that reality. Look at it, chapter 11 and verse 17. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, and we expect it to say who is to come, but it is not there. Because that's the reality that's unfolding before us. Christ has come. That has happened. If you keep reading, we read what he's done. He's destroyed the destroyers of the earth in judgment. He's rewarded those who fear God's name. And verse 19 concludes the chapter like this. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and an earthquake and heavy hail. Revelation has already used this storm imagery as a symbol of Christ's coming. Do you remember that? All the way back at the end of chapter 8, at the conclusion of our first cycle of sevens, at the conclusion of the seven seals, we got a vision of Christ's second coming exactly like this. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake. And if you recall, at that point, we said Revelation was continuing on because it had more to reveal. And here we are again, at the conclusion of our second cycle of sevens, the seven trumpets. And here again, we get a vision of Christ's second coming, an even more intense vision this time, because added to the lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake, we now get heavy hail. It's it's as if Revelation leads us up to the second coming of Christ. And then it backs up and it does it again because it's got more to reveal. And the more and more that is revealed, the more and more intense things get. Right here after the seventh trumpet, the intensity continues to increase because Revelation's not done. It continues on. It has more to reveal. But what could that be? I mean... At this point, we've seen the seven seals broken open on the scroll of the conquering kingdom so that it could be unrolled and we could read its contents. We've, we've heard the seven trumpets sounded that prepared us to read the scroll of the conquering kingdom. And last week, we don't have time to review the whole thing, but last week we finally got that scroll unrolled. And it revealed 
How we as the people of God conquer and how his kingdom will come. Do you remember that? We conquer by showing we've got a mission, a task to witness to this world as the church. And this is how we conquer. We conquer by showing the world the worth of Christ through our words and through our wounds. Like In other words, we testify to the gospel, even if the beastly empires of this world oppose us, even if they kill us, we cling to Christ even when that takes us to a cross. And do you remember what happens when we do that? Faithfully endure? When the world hears our words that proclaim that Christ loved them so much he died for them, and then they see our wounds demonstrate that we love them so much we will die for them to hear that gospel when our words and our wounds match god works to open the eyes of the world to the worth of jesus through a church that looks like jesus god opens people's eyes to see the worth of Jesus through a church that looks like Jesus. Just go back to Acts chapter 8 and to the very first martyr of the church. Read the account of the martyrdom of Stephen. His death is meant to mirror the death of Christ. He's meant to look like Jesus through his words and his wounds. Even to the point that he's saying, Father, as he dies, Father, forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them. And through his words and his wounds... The eyes of somebody named Paul will eventually be opened, not in that moment, but eventually they will be opened through the faithful witness, the words and the wounds of the church. And Paul will go on to witness to the world through his words and his wounds. Just read Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, the apostle Paul is witnessing in Philippi with his words and he gets thrown in jail and he gets beaten. He's bleeding and bloody with all of these wounds and he's still singing the praises of Jesus. And as a result, God opens the eyes of a Philippian jailer. God opens the eyes of people to the worth of Jesus through a church that looks like Jesus. And last week we saw that results in people from every language and tribe, nation and tongue being brought into the kingdom. That's how we conquer. We cling to Christ until his kingdom comes. But shades, if I'm honest... I'm left asking, how are we going to be empowered to do that? It's great to talk about that. Read that message of that unrolled scroll. How are we going to eat that message like we talked about last week to where it shapes all of our words and all of our actions that are coming out of us? How are we going to be empowered to live this way, to witness to Christ with our words and our wounds, even if it means our very lives? How are we going to be equipped to do that? How are we going to be empowered and equipped to faithfully endure? Especially when the enemy is doing all that he can to make us quit. Shades, that is the more that Revelation has to reveal. Yes, the scroll has been unrolled, but there is more that we need to see about the message of that scroll, especially concerning our enemy. The scroll showed us. It showed us that he will do all that he can through individuals, through the beastly empires of this world. He will do all that he can to keep us from enduring, to make us quit instead of conquering. This is the more that Revelation has to reveal. Thus, the next three chapters. We're going to have three chapters before we pick back up with another cycle of seven. 
The next three chapters aim to unpack more what we've seen in the scroll, to give us more perspectives that we need. They aim to empower us. I think that's what's happening in chapter 12. They aim to equip us. I think that's what will happen in chapter 13. And they do all of this so that we may endure. I think that will be the call extended to us in chapter 14. As a matter of fact, just read chapter 13 and verse 10, chapter 14 and verse 12. They both say the same thing with the exact same words. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Shades, these three chapters give us more perspectives that we need to see about the message of the unrolled scroll so that we will be able to follow its call to conquer, so that we will be able to endure clinging to Christ. So for the rest of this morning, let's dive into chapter 12, which aims to empower us to endure. How are we going to be empowered to cling to Christ even if it costs us our lives? Let's see the answer together, beginning in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Right here. In chapter 12, we are going to be shown three realities about our enemy. Three realities that will add up to empower our endurance, empower us to cling to Christ. And right here we see reality number one, the enemy's identity. We see our dragon enemy. Number one, our dragon enemy. I say our, the church, our dragon enemy because john actually introduces us before he introduces the dragon he sees a great sign or literally the word just means a symbol in heaven in other words he sees something symbolic that that points to a reality beyond itself what does he see he sees a pregnant woman in the pains of childbirth who does that immediately remind us of? It immediately reminds me of Eve. I mean, the, the text stresses the pain and the agony that she's in. That takes my mind back to Genesis chapter 3. Where Eve, our first mother, was deceived by the serpent and thus cursed with pain in childbirth. But she's promised a future offspring in Genesis 3.15, an offspring that will come and ultimately crush the head of the serpent, Satan. And here's this woman in Revelation 12 about to give birth, apparently to someone that Satan wants dead. I bet it's because he will be that promised son. Verse 5 actually identifies this child for us. He's identified as one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's a prophecy straight out of Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. The whole the whole second psalm is messianic. It's all prophetic about the coming of a Messiah. 
But Revelation specifically picks up this prophecy in multiple places. Go back to Revelation 2 and verse 27, or fast forward all the way to Revelation 19 and verse 15. Both places quote this prophecy and say clearly that it's fulfilled by Christ. The child here is clearly none other than Christ. So now, this woman doesn't just remind us of Eve, she also reminds me of Mary, the mother of Jesus. But she's even more than that. She's she's more than a symbol of Eve, more than just a symbol of Mary. For John tells us that she is clothed in the sun. Her feet are shod with the moon, and she is crowned with 12 stars. That is Genesis 37 imagery, clearly. It's the only other place in the Bible you'll find it, really. Genesis 37, do you remember Joseph? His coat of many colors. Remember his brothers hated him because of his dreams. You remember one of those dreams? In it, he saw his parents, Israel and Rachel, symbolically as the sun and the moon. And he and his brothers were stars, all 12 of them. They're symbols for the people of God. Those 12 sons go on to become the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel becomes the name of the entire people of God because they all come from Israel. This is, this is imagery of the people of, of God. And this makes sense, right? Because we've seen Revelation consistently use the number 12 and its multiples as a symbol for the people of God. This woman symbolically represents God's people throughout all of salvation history. The promises he's made to his people since Genesis 3.15 till they come to fulfillment in Mary and all the way to the end. This is imagery for God's faithful people who, by the way, all throughout Scripture are often pictured as a woman. Read the Old Testament where the people of God are called daughter Zion or the virgin Israel. How about the New Testament where the church is called the bride of Christ? Right here, we're seeing that it is through God's people that God came as one of his people to save his people. Here we see the people of God in the pains of of childbirth, the pains of, of longing for the Messiah to come. Here we are seeing the pain of the season of Advent. The pain that we sing every year, I know we don't normally think of Advent as a season of pain, but it's a season of pain and longing for the coming of the Messiah. We sing that pain, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Right here, we are seeing Revelation's Christmas story. You should read this one to your kids this December 24th. They'll be way more interested. It's got a dragon. It's a little different than the silent night that we usually sing about. Because here there be a dragon. John gives us another sign, another symbol that points to a reality beyond itself, the symbol of a dragon. Now, the Old Testament, primarily Psalms and the prophets, okay, Psalms and the prophets, but the entirety of the Old Testament, it commonly uses dragons, serpents, sea monsters, which are just water dragons, uses all of that symbolically for evil kings. Pharaoh gets called a dragon or a sea dragon throughout the Old Testament. 
It uses it symbolically for evil kings and kingdoms who persecute God's people. And if you look down right here in Revelation 12, you look down at verse 9, it tells us that all of this imagery has been gathered up here to point to the ultimate evil one. This is what it says in verse 9. The dragon, that ancient serpent, who's called the devil, and Satan, both names mean the adversary, the accuser. This is who this dragon is. Satan. The accuser, the the, the dragon here, he's red. Uh, Like... You may remember he's red like the color of the horseman that we encountered back in Revelation chapter 6. We nicknamed that horseman bloodshed. This dragon's red for the same reason. He is also hell-bent on bloodshed. Verse 4 tells us whose bloodshed he is bent on. The Messiah and the people who follow him. Because verse 4 tells us that the dragon is there ready to consume this kid as soon as he is born. It tells us in verse 4 that his tail sweeps down a third of the stars from heaven. The stars that verse 1 just used as a symbol for the people of God. This is our dragon enemy, hell-bent on the bloodshed of Christ and his people, and he will use everything at his disposal to bring about our destruction. He's... He is completely evil, signified by his seven heads. Seven, remember in Revelation, number of completeness. we got a seven-headed serpent. This is the complete totality of evil embodied. He will use all of his evil, and he will wield every ounce of his evil power. He's got ten horns. Remember in apocalyptic imagery, horns are often symbols for power. Wield Every ounce of his supposed evil power and authority. He's got seven crowns on his head as if to tout that he's the ruler and king of everything. Wield all of his evil power, his supposed authority to try and destroy God's people and consume Christ. Jesus wants us to see this is our dragon enemy. It's always been him. Genesis on. This is our dragon enemy. Shades, this is vital for us to see. It's vital because, remember, the unrolled scroll has called us to follow Christ the Lamb even when that means dying for our enemies. How will we be empowered to endure when it means dying for our enemies? By seeing the identity of our ultimate enemy. It's not the world. How are you going to be empowered to die for the world? We've got to see that the world is not our ultimate enemy. It's the dragon. Jesus wants us to see that. Jesus has always wanted the church to see that. Jesus wanted the seven churches in Asia Minor who originally heard Revelation to see that. Do you remember all the way back in Revelation chapter 2 as we read through Jesus' individualized messages to these seven churches? When we read his message to the church at Smyrna, Smyrna was a church that was suffering. It's the only place in Revelation we even get a Christian named who's been killed. Antipas had died. And Jesus tells the church at Smyrna that more suffering is headed their way. But do you remember how he says it? He says this, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The devil is about to throw them into prison? I mean, obviously, it's Rome that's going to throw them into prison. But Jesus wants these Christians to know who the true enemy is, the devil, Satan, 
dragon. That does not change the fact that persecutors are responsible for their actions, but it completely changes how Christians act towards their persecutors. We don't war against the world because they are not the ultimate enemy. Shades, our culture is not the enemy. Republicans are not the enemy. Democrats are not the enemy. The people of this world are not the enemy, and Revelation does not call us to war against them, but to die for them. To lay down our lives as a witness to the, to the worth of Christ. We love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. That's what Jesus taught us to do in Matthew 5 and verse 44. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, even when they persecute you to the point of killing you. Still pray for them. Jesus did that. Jesus prayed for his enemies even when they killed him. He prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They know not what they do because they're blind. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They're blind. They're not the real enemy. They're deceived by him. They're not the real enemy. They're deceived by him. Yes, Yes, they are still responsible for the evil, for all of the evil they do. But shades, even if enemies that oppress us and persecute us never repent, we still repay no one evil for evil. That's what Romans 12 and verse 17 says. Repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Shades, you don't have to spend your life looking at the world as an enemy for which you have to be the righteous judge who rights all wrongs. You cannot be the righteous judge. There is only one. And he will judge justly. He will right all wrongs, which frees you, empowers you to love. Shades. What will empower us to follow the Lamb even when that means dying for our enemies? Seeing that they're not the ultimate enemy. They're deceived by Him, by our dragon enemy. We war against Him to liberate them. We do that by showing them the worth of Christ with our words and our wounds. We are empowered to endure by seeing the identity of our true ultimate enemy, the dragon. But, if I'm honest, I'm still kind of wondering how this is supposed to help me endure. Like, how, how is learning the identity of my true enemy, that he is a bloodthirsty dragon hell-bent on my destruction, how is that supposed to help me endure? Like, I mean, right here in verses 1 through 6, he wants to consume Christ and kill the church. Great. Thanks for the motivational vision, John. It's really empowering me to endure. But the vision isn't done. Revelation 12 has more to reveal. We've only seen one out of three realities about our enemy. And they will add up to empower our endurance, to empower us to cling to Christ. So... We've seen our dragon enemy. Now, secondly, John shows us our defeated enemy. Our defeated enemy. 
We begin to see the reality of our defeated enemy in verses 5 and 6. Did you notice? We already read it, but did you notice that the, the dragon fails at what he's trying to do? He fails to harm the child and the woman. Look again, verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ condensed into a sentence. Because the focus right here is the failure of the dragon to consume Christ. And he not only fails to consume Christ, but he fails to consume Christ's church. Look at verse 6. It says, The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished, fed, literally, for 1,260 days. We're going to talk more about what this means in just a minute, but, but know this much right now. What we're seeing is that from the time of Christ's resurrection and ascension, in other words, from his first coming, until his return, a period very clearly right here, I think, symbolically called 1,260 days, or in other words, three and a half years. I told you last week that I believe all of the variations on three and a half that we find in Revelation, 42 months, 1,260 days, time, times, and half a time, all those variations of three and a half refer to the church age between the comings of Christ. His first coming and his second coming. I think that's super clear right here. Throughout the church age, we are being shown that Satan and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. She is nourished, fed, sustained by the very power and presence of God. The dragon fails to consume Christ and he fails to consume the church. He is our defeated enemy. Why? Like how, how has he been defeated? Like what defeated him? That's, that's what verses 7 to 12 reveal. Look at verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. This is backing up, and it's retelling the same story that we just heard in verses 1 through 6, but it's telling it to us from a different perspective. You can see that if you just look down at verse 13. Verse 13 is going to pick right back up with the woman fleeing into the wilderness. So we're getting the same story again. It's like when a movie goes meanwhile or elsewhere. We're getting the same story again, and we're getting it again because verses 1 through 6 revealed the identity of our ultimate enemy, but verses 7 through 12 reveal that the reality that he is defeated. This is being pictured for us as a war in heaven. I don't know that there's like little, little war like angels and the sort could be. I don't know, but it's a vision, so you know. It's being pictured for us as a war in heaven between the dragon and his demons Michael and his angels. And uh, Michael's named for us in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, Michael is this great angel who represents and defends the people of God. And that's what he's doing here. We, we are seeing the heavenly reality behind the earthly reality of verses 1 to 6, where Satan tried to conquer and consume Christ. Satan tried to do that. That's an earthly reality. Satan tried to do that for real. 
all throughout the, the life of Christ. Yes, even at his birth, he was poised as a dragon to consume Christ. Do you remember that at Christ's birth, Satan stirred up King Herod to slaughter all of the children in Bethlehem and attempt to consume Christ? He escaped to the wilderness. He tried to tempt, he did this all throughout the life of Christ. He tried to tempt Christ for 40 days in the wilderness. He tried inspiring crowds to stone Jesus, even to toss him off a cliff. He, he stirred up Judas to betray Christ, and Satan may have finally felt like he conquered Jesus when he was actually crucified, finally crushed him. But the cross turned out not to crush Christ, but to be the very means by which Christ fulfilled Genesis 3.15 and crushed Satan's serpent head. Verse 8 is beckoning us to see that heavenly reality. He, Satan, was defeated. In other words, when the woman's child was born and caught up to God and to his heavenly throne, when the earthly reality of Christ's birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension took place, here was the heavenly reality that happened. Satan was defeated. The war was won. Satan was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. I know that this right here is describing the victory brought about by Christ's death and resurrection and his glorious ascension because that's what the very next verse, verse 10, declares. Look at it. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now! Now, this has happened. Christ has been born, lived, died, ascended. Satan has been thrown down. That's what's happened. Now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. The salvation of our God has come. The salvation of God came through the cross. The power of our God has come. The power of God came through Jesus sending the Holy Spirit after his resurrection and ascension. The kingdom of our God has come. The kingdom of God was inaugurated when Christ ascended and sat down on his throne at the right hand of his Father. The authority of our Christ has come. Was that not the last thing that Jesus said before his ascension? Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Through the cross... That's what we're getting. Christ has crushed Satan's serpent head. He may be our dragon enemy, but he is also our defeated enemy. And did you see? Did you see what that means for us, for you and me? Verses 8 and 10 said multiple times, there was no longer any place for Satan, the accuser. That's what his name means. There was no longer any place for the accuser. There was no longer any place in heaven because the accused had been acquitted. Before, before Christ came, it was as if Satan had a case against us all. You, me, all of God's people. Satan is, is pictured like, like being a prosecuting attorney in heaven. He's pictured right here as uh, accusing God's people day and night before the presence of God. The Old Testament actually gives us some pictures like this. Do you remember some of them, like from Job? Being of Job, Satan comes before the presence of God and is accusing Job and accusing God. It gives us a couple of these different pictures. My favorite is in Zechariah chapter 3. In Zechariah chapter 3, we get a vision of the high priest at the time, Joshua. 
And in this vision, Joshua the high priest is standing in the presence of God and he is clothed with filthy garments that represent his sin. And at his right hand stands Satan to accuse him. And it looks like Satan's got a case. He's covered in sin. And Satan accuses until the Lord literally tells Satan to shut his mouth. And he proclaims in verse 4 of Zechariah 3, remove the filthy garments And to Joshua, God said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. You go on to read that vision, and it says the way that's going to be possible is that one day a Christ will come. He will pay the price for our sins so that we may be clothed in righteousness. And shades, what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 12 is that Christ has come, so we have been clothed. Satan, the accuser, no longer has a case. The accused have been acquitted. And the accuser has been disbarred, kicked out. I don't, I don't think this literally means God gave Satan a boot in the pants and that he fell from heaven. Maybe, okay, fine, it's a vision. But what it means when it says that he's been thrown down is that he has been defeated. And we are empowered to endure over our defeated enemy. Is that not precisely what the next verse says? Verse 11 And they have conquered. In other words, those he used to accuse day and night before the throne of God. They have conquered. They have conquered him. They've conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb. Yes and amen. Jesus' blood covered our sin. The accuser has no case. We've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and are now empowered to endure over our defeated enemy. But if I'm honest, if I'm honest, Shades, I'm left asking why we still have to endure. I mean, if the enemy is defeated, what is there to endure? He has been thrown down. But Shades, like a snake with a crushed head, he is still wiggling around as much as he can. I I remember uh, as a kid doing yard work with my dad, and there was this one day where we were picking up sticks, and I reached down for this particularly long, uh, skinny limb, and my dad told me to freeze he went back to the wheelbarrow and he grabbed a garden hoe and he used it to chop off the end of the stick, which obviously was not a stick. It was the biggest copperhead that I have still ever seen in my entire life. And I remember that even after that thing's head was off, there was still enough left going on in his nervous system for him to wiggle around on the ground for a bit. Freaked me out. But shades, Satan, just like that snake, has been dealt a mortal blow. His head is crushed. He's been thrown down, but he's definitely still wiggling around. And that is why verse 12 says, Therefore, rejoice, O heavens. He's been thrown down. He's defeated. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. The devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Already defeated, not yet completely done away with. We talk about this all the time at Shades, that we live in the midst of the already not yet. 
sin already paid for. Not yet have we been perfected, glorified in the presence of Christ when we one day see him and we'll be like him even as he is. Kingdom already come, though not yet fully consummated. And Satan already defeated, though not yet fully done away with. I don't know how it gets clearer than verse 12. And this is where we see the third and final reality that empowers us to endure, see our desperate enemy. We've seen our dragon enemy, our defeated enemy, and finally, our desperate enemy. Desperate because he knows, he knows his time is short. He knows he doesn't have long to to wiggle around. Look at verse 13. When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to earth, in other words, when he saw that he'd been conquered by Christ and couldn't get the kid, he goes after the woman, the people of God. When he'd been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was, was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Three and a half again, in other words, the church age. Our story right here picks back up and it does so with Exodus imagery all over the place. You, you remember the story of the Exodus when God's people were enslaved in Egypt, so he raised up a deliverer by the name of Moses. Moses, who also was almost killed as a baby by Pharaoh, who the Old Testament often calls a dragon. But he miraculously lived, and God used him to deliver his people out of slavery, lead them through the difficulties of the wilderness, nourishing them, literally feeding them with manna, bread from heaven every step of the way until they reached the promised land. Do you know how God described that deliverance, that salvation? Exodus 19 and verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. Here in Revelation 12, do we not see the same thing? Through Jesus, a greater Moses. Jesus, the ultimate deliverer, Through him, God saves his people from enslavement to sin and death. He's borne us up on eagle's wings. And yes, we are still in the wilderness of this world where there are dangers, but he has promised to provide everything we need, nourished every step of the way until we reach the promised land of the new Jerusalem, new creation, the new heavens and new earth. Is that not what we see? So Shay's the template for how we're to think of the world in which we live is not we are already living in the promised land. We're on the way. We live in the wilderness, and in the wilderness there are still real dangers. Because here in the wilderness of this world, there be a dragon. And he is desperate because he knows he is defeated. We're going to make it to the promised land. He knows that. And he's ticked about it. And so while we are in the wilderness, he will throw everything at us that he can. He's he's like a kid. You ever played a board game with a kid? He's he's like a kid who knows that he's lost the board game. Like there is no path to victory left. And so in his anger, he flips the board game, flings the picture, or maybe a video game. They throw the controller through the TV. You can look up a whole compilation of that happening on YouTube if you want to. I'm not speaking from personal experience. I've never done anything like this. 
the flipping of the board only confirms his defeat. Shades, we live in the middle of the board being flipped. All of Satan's rage, his throwing of the pieces, his tantrum, his wrath, all of it is not evidence that he's winning, but that he has already lost. When Satan rages against you, it's not that God is absent, it's that God has already won. And he's ticked because his time is short. He's desperate because he knows he's defeated. So while we're in the wilderness of this world, he throws everything at us that he possibly can. That's what he does in verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Everywhere, everything we have seen symbolically come out of anyone's mouth in Revelation has to do with their words. We've seen the truth of Christ's word come out of his mouth like a sword. We'll see it again. We've seen the truth of the gospel pour from, from the mouth of witnesses like us, pour like fire. And from the mouths of demons, we've seen deception pour out that leads to death. Is that not the very aim of the serpent's flood right here? To bring about death? He does that through deception. I am certain that's what this means because the text swaps from calling him a dragon to calling him a serpent to remind you he's a deceiver. This is a flood of deception. But I think it's also a flood of persecution. Quite a few times the Old Testament uses flood imagery to symbolize the persecution of God's people. This is our desperate enemy. Knows he's defeated. Throws at us everything that he can. Deception with his words and persecution to give us wounds. Do you see the tools that, eight, that Satan aims to use to bring about your destruction? Words and wounds. The very means that God works through to bear witness to the world of the worth of Christ. Those are the means that Satan works through to try to get us to embrace anything other than the worth of Christ. Oh. Shades, every day you face a torrential flood of words that pour forth from the mouth of Satan himself. The tongue is the only thing I know of in Scripture that we're told is lit on fire by hell itself. You face a torrential flood of words pouring forth from the mouth of Satan himself, beckoning you to cling to something, anything other than Christ. Oh, sure, these words, they come through the news, they come through social media feeds, they come through the culture at large, but we know who the ultimate enemy is. Rome may have been throwing the Smyrnians in prison, but they knew who the ultimate enemy was our dragon enemy, and through every possible means, he is pressuring you to participate in the idolatry and immorality that surrounds you. He threatens persecution if you don't. He threatens you with wounds if you don't listen to his words. He comes after you with words and wounds to convince you the wilderness isn't worth it. You should go back to the world. Is is that not the same strategy he used against the Israelites in the Old Testament when they were wandering through the wilderness? 
Did he not constantly tell them, the wilderness isn't worth it? Did he not constantly have them pining to, to go back to Egypt because he deceptively got them to forget that that was actually a place of captivity? He convinced them that it was a land of plenty. In wilderness, that was just a place of, of pain. Our dragon enemy came at those Israelites in the wilderness with words and with wounds. In shades, his strategy has not changed. He still pours forth a flood of words and wounds to get you to cling to anyone and anything other than Christ. So what are we to do? Verse 16. But the earth came to the help of the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from its mouth. This is more Exodus imagery. Because when the Israelites left Egypt and began to wander into the wilderness, the first danger that they faced were the waters of the Red Sea. You remember this? Pharaoh changes his mind about having let the Israelites go, and so he chases them and he traps them between his army and the Red Sea. So what does God do? God parts the waters so his people could cross. And when Pharaoh tried to follow, the waters came crashing down and Pharaoh's army drowned. Do you know how the Israelites described that event when they sang a song of victory on the other side? Exodus 15 and verse 12, God, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. God in Psalm 74 describes this same event as the defeat of Pharaoh, the dragon. In other words, what we're seeing right here through the earth swallowing up this flood coming out of the dragon's mouth, what we are seeing is God's protection of the woman of his people in Revelation chapter 12. This is his power providing for her in the midst of the wilderness. He promised us twice in this text that his people would be nourished, literally fed for all 1,260 days, for a time, times, and half a time, for the entirety of the church age. In other words, shades, God has promised to provide every defense we need to endure all the enemy's words and all of his wounds. Just like God fed the Israelites manna in the wilderness, Jesus told us in John chapter 6 that he is the true manna from heaven and God feeds us with his presence, with the very presence of Christ through the wilderness of this world for all the days of our life. How? As you face words and the wounds of the enemy, how are you going to be fed, nourished by the true manna from heaven, by the presence of Christ in the midst of this world? How are you going to know that Christ is with you? How are you going to keep your eyes on the worth and the glory of Christ so that you cling to him so that Satan's words don't deceive you and his wounds don't persecute you to the point that you're willing to let go and grab onto anything else? How are you going to cling to Christ? Verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. It tells us who those are, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Our dragon enemy is furious, desperate, because he's no, he knows he's defeated. He cannot destroy the woman, the people of God, the church. Jesus promised, gates of hell will not prevail against her. But that does not mean that he can't harm mother church's children individual Christians. This is the same image we've seen over and over again throughout Revelation, is it not? That we have ultimate, the church has ultimate protection, but that does not mean that we will not suffer physical persecution and even death. 
We saw that through the sealing of the church in chapter 7. We saw it through the vision of the temple in Revelation chapter 11, and we see it here again. Mother Church ultimately protected the people of God, will not ultimately be defeated. But man, does he come after her children. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Shades, that's how they're going to endure. That's how, Shades. That's how you feast on the true manna from heaven through the wilderness of this world. That's how God empowers us by providing us with the presence of Christ. Through His Word. Through the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's His Word. Through His Word we see the worth of Jesus and are empowered to cling to Jesus. It's through His Word. You want to see Christ? You see Him through His Word. The Spirit works through the Word to show us the glory and value of Christ so that we'll cling to Him no matter what other words and wounds come against us in this life. It's through His Word, the commandments of God, the testimony of Jesus. This is where we see Jesus' worth and are empowered to cling to Jesus. For this Word also helps us to see our dragon enemy for what he is, defeated and desperate. It helps us to see through all the flood of His words and wounds that He pours out after us. We see straight through those things and we cling to Christ. And words and wounds are the, the very thing that the dragon desperately tries to use to defeat us. They become the very means by by which we defeat him. Look at verse 11. I didn't read you the whole thing earlier. It's the most important verse in the whole chapter. Words and wounds, the things he uses to try to defeat us, they become the very means by which we defeat him. We've already talked about something that worked exactly this way with his trying to defeat Christ. Was it not the cross? The very means by which he tried to crush Christ became the means by which Christ crushed Satan's serpent head. The same thing happens. He attacks us with words and wounds, and our words and wounds become the means by which we conquer him. Verse 11, and they have conquered him. The ones that he accused with his words, the ones that he sought to wound, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Wounds. The very thing our dragon enemy desperately tries to use to defeat us. Words and wounds become the means by which we defeat him. Everything Satan throws at us only serves to further the purposes of God. It's like, it's like trying to get rid of dandelions by mowing them. You just mow them down and it just spreads them everywhere. Satan, through his words and wounds, tries to cut us down and they become the very means by which we spread. Through our words, we testify to Christ. Through our wounds, we show his worth to the world. Shades, no matter the flood that Satan pours out to convince us to cling to something else is worth more than Christ, we cling to the blood that has covered us and defeat Satan's accusations. We cling to Christ. With our words, we defeat all of Satan's deceptions, denying them, testifying to the truth that there's nothing worth more than Christ. And with our wounds, we defeat all of Satan's persecutions and pressures, showing the world that Jesus is our greatest treasure. Shades, we conquer Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, not loving our lives even unto death. We cling to Christ. Shades, we are empowered 
to endure against our dragon enemy because he cannot conquer our King Jesus. That's what verses 1 through 6 really show us. Their real focus is not our dragon enemy, but our King Jesus who cannot be conquered no matter what our dragon enemy tries to do. Verses 7 to 12 showed us our dragon enemy as our defeated enemy. The real focus is our conqueror, Jesus, who conquered him and crushed his head. Verses 13 to 17 that helped us see our desperate enemy who may throw everything in the world at us. But really what we were being helped to see is that none of that is more powerful than our keeper, Jesus, who provides us with his powerful presence, with everything we need to endure every day through the wilderness of this world until we reach the promised land of the new one. Shades, be empowered to endure against our dragon enemy who is desperate because he is defeated. Be empowered by our King Jesus who is keeping us, for he has 